The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I want to read to you from the Psalms, from Psalm 24. What I want to do in this session is really pick up on a couple of the themes that I touched on this morning and develop them in a little bit more detail. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 7. We read in this Psalm of David, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. I want to continue this theme of considering together the big picture. My theme for this afternoon is our comprehensive faith. The call to be a Christian teacher is much more than just picking a profession for 30 or more years, picking a a vocation to do something with our time. It actually fits into God's comprehensive plan for this world. The psalmist says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I know sometimes for many of us it takes some adjustment in our thinking to remember and to remind ourselves in our secularized world that this world and everything in it actually belongs to God. That is the affirmation of the scriptures. It's the affirmation of our Lord himself. This world is God's world. He created it. He sustains it. He governs it in his providence. He has a purpose and a meaning in history, and he is going to be the one who brings it, as we know it, to its conclusion. We've heard a lot already about worldview. And when we use that term worldview, what exactly do we mean? Well, obviously, we mean a way of viewing the world. It's interesting that when we look at uh, Western history in particular, but we look at world history, we notice that in the ancient world, people didn't view the world per se, but rather they encountered it. We gained our knowledge about the world through world encounter. There was a sense in which, for example, the ancient Hebrews, in their cultivation of the ground through technologies like the plough, encountered the providence and the goodness and the faithfulness of God in that process of farming, for example. And in thankfulness and in gratitude to God, they took of the produce of the ground and they offered it to him as a thank offering, a grain offering. It was world encounter that led us to our understanding of who God is. In the modern world, the modern era, which some would argue began with Descartes, others with John Scotus Duns a bit earlier, but with Descartes and his... uh, locating the point of ultimacy in the human mind with his systematic doubt, 
his doubting of everything, often thought to be the beginnings of modern philosophy, began the era of world viewing. The notion that we as creatures could stand back from creation in a sense, distance ourselves from it and say we will view the world and we'll make the human mind ultimate. That is, we will judge everything in terms of the autonomy, the independence, the total independence of the human mind that need not reference God in our thinking. Descartes was inadvertent in that development, of course. He was a Catholic himself. But nonetheless, he, as Pascal says, did without God in his philosophy. God was an appendage, tagged on, as a necessary sort of limiting concept. He wasn't foundational. Revelation wasn't necessary. So the ancient world accepted that God could speak, as revealed himself in many respects, in the uh, providences expressed in the creation, seed time and harvest and so forth. The modern era, world viewing. Galileo, the great Christian scientist who developed the telescope that was uh, accidentally discovered by some children of a spectacle maker in uh, Holland, I think in the uh, mid-17th century. Galileo developed it, trained it on the skies, and hence began the modern technology of viewing, viewing things, uh, microscopes dissecting things. Again, the goal here had ceased to be the encounter with God's world, to think God's thoughts after him, as Copernicus put it, to think in terms of God, and to discover God's activity in creation, even though that was the goal of Galileo himself, it soon became... The notion that human beings could accomplish comprehensive knowledge without reference to God. The conquest of creation. The demythologizing of creation. The desacredization, if that's even a word. To uh, take out of our encounter with the world the sacred and secularize, which literally means this worldly, the seculum. That everything is in terms of human beings, the human mind, and this world. The transcendence of God, we've been cut off from transcendence. We're left then only with imminence. And an imminent world collapses in on itself. There's no referent for truth, beauty, morality, anything. There's no referent outside of the human mind. And that led us in the story of uh, modern philosophy from the rationalism of Descartes and the dream of comprehensive knowledge in terms of man to the scepticism and subjectivism of our time which says, well, if we're viewing the world and everybody's looking at it from a different view because we're all limited, then there is no true view of the world. There are just views, different perspectives. There's no transcendent referent because there's no revelation that has been given to us. Now, we as Christians believe, as Christian teachers believe, in that thumbnail sketch of history of philosophy, reflected in these technological developments, the plough, the telescope, and in, in the postmodern world now, or the, better still, the ultra-modern world. You see, post-modernity is not a rejection of modernity per se. It is the, the last stage of modernity's development. When you cut yourself off from God and say, I'm autonomous, I'm independent, I don't need God, I don't need to think in terms of God, you're left with the postmodern, this pure subjectivism. Or at least in its... Uh, at least it's scepticism concerning, concerning the possibility of knowing truth. And what is the technology reflected in our time of this uh, particular perspective? Virtual reality. Cyberspace. Digital fictions. We invent reality. We're now world-making. We're not world-viewing. We're certainly not world-encountering. We're world-making. 
Nonetheless, the point that we mean to bring out when we talk about a worldview is that everybody, when they come to answer the ultimate questions of life, all of your students are going to be looking at reality through a certain lens through which they understand and see and interpret everything. A perspective on reality. Now, what are four, the four ultimate questions that are associated with a worldview, with viewing, uh, understanding our conception of the world? Uh, my colleague Ravi identifies very simply as origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. I think that's very helpful. The four ultimate types of worldview questions that we each seek to ask and answer in our lives are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where am I from? What is my origin? Where did I come from? Secondly, meaning. Then, What is the meaning then in my life? Is there any meaning to life? Of course, these questions are interrelated. They can't be artificially separated. What's the meaning of my life is related to my origin. If I have come from the goo through the zoo to you, from cosmic chaos, then obviously meaning in life is going to be difficult to find. Thirdly, morality. How should I live? In light of my view of origins and in light of my view of meaning, how do I now live? Ethics. Morality. How should I make ethical decisions? And we as teachers, of course, are seeking to help students prepare for the many ethical challenges, moral decision-making processes they're going to have, they will encounter at every stage in life. Morality. Finally, destiny. Where is it all going to end? Is it heat death? Does the universe die off as the universe expands and cools? Does it just decay into oblivion? Or will I stand before God as my judge? Another way of talking about it is, is uh, the, what we might call the context principle. The context principle says that behaviors are appropriate or inappropriate based on the context in which they take place. So if you believe that your life is lived, well let's take a stupid illustration to begin with. All of you came to this conference this afternoon with your clothes on, I'm pleased to say. <laughs> Not only because it's cold, but because it's highly inappropriate to turn up to a conference of Christian teachers, even in the west of Canada, without your clothes on. <laughs> There is an appropriate place for that, of course, in the bath is one example, but not... To, I mean, that's a nightmare, isn't it, that you have about going to school with and turning up in your underpants and so on. <laughs> the context is wholly inappropriate, so the context determines what is appropriate. Now, imagine for a moment, you're a young person, 15, 16, 17, 18, and you believe the context of your life, the ultimate context of your life, is one of utter meaninglessness. That there was a quantum, random fluctuation of a vacuum, nothing produced everything, and you're here, and it's all going to end in nothing, and you are, you are deconstructed into the void of nothingness, and you're understood in terms of brutes and animals, psychologically, biologically, chemically, and so forth, and then you're supposed to come to live as a human being and be... Uh, and understand how one is to apply that kind of thinking to life. How do you derive a 
ethical ought from a biological is. If A evolved from B, you can't say A is better than B, it's just different. It's precisely what Peter Singer, chair of bioethics at Princeton, believes today that, you know, a pig or a dog or a rat even has as much, if not more, value than a newborn infant that's disabled. Because without a transcendent referent, everything becomes purely this subjectivism as we are deconstructed increasingly into the void of nothingness. The context principle then says, what kind of context, ultimate context, do I live my life in? Or, am I a creature of God, made in the image of God, for God, by God, and will be accountable to God? That's a very different context. And if we believe that is the context of our lives, then of course it's going to affect our behaviour. never ceases to amaze me when I read the paper and listen to politicians... Minister of Education recently in the UK griping about the behaviour of university students, fornicating, getting sexiled from dorms, not paying their fees, cheating, and some, some of you may have seen Maclean's magazine and the number of uh, front page, front cover, how many students are all cheating at university and so forth. Well, what do you expect? If you cannot make ethical judgments... If your ultimate context of life is a godless one, one that is lacking the transcendent, then how can you possibly expect students to make the kind of ethical decisions that enable society to function? That enables life to function, which means, of course, that people live inconsistent with what they profess to believe. They profess to believe one thing as the ultimate principle of context of their lives, but they live in terms of a completely different principle. These politicians included. People borrow from the Christian story, from the Christian worldview all the time. They just don't want to give God the credit. They have to borrow from it in order to make life work. Even though our professing completely different presuppositions, that would destroy the intelligibility of human experience. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. You and I, are concerned then with the comprehensive nature of our faith that addresses those four fundamental and primary questions. And that is the context in which all the other aspects of your education and literature and history and mathematics and so forth take place. In that context, they are informed by that Christian understanding of the answer to those four basic questions. When I was growing up, the realm of my responsibility and sphere of my authority was very limited. That's the nature of the case when you're a child. Your authority, your responsibility is limited in infancy. When I was growing up, I grew up in a Christian family. My father was a minister. I was taught about Christ as Lord, as the creator and the redeemer of the world. I learned about sin and salvation and forgiveness and the gift of grace, the purpose and the peace that God offers, these truths and the rest were instilled into my heart. And I believed these things. They were impressed upon me by the Holy Spirit. I believed them. I still do believe them. Why do I still believe in the God I believed in when I was eight years old? The realm though of the application for these truths that I believed in childhood was limited to my immediate person, my ultimate sense of salvation, my concept of heaven, and my desire to share 
this good news with my school friends. My life was circumscribed by these areas of authority in the family, in the church, in the school. And it meant, of course, that as a child there is only a very limited capacity for you to express the comprehensive nature of your faith by the nature of the case. That is the material authority of Scripture that we talked about in the last session. Now, today as a man, many of those hedges of protection have now been taken away, and those spheres that guided my life are no longer present. Or at least they've taken a very different form. Because I am now a husband. I am now a father. I am now a parent. I am now charged with the responsibility of teaching and defending the Christian faith. I am now charged with the responsibility of caring for my parents as they grow older. Something, by the way, which Jesus was very concerned about. Remember when the uh, Pharisees came and uh, were offering their the exact uh, right amounts of tithe and spice and so forth, and uh, were priding themselves in their obedience to the law, Jesus said, but you neglect the more important matters of the law. You bring your gift, but you don't look after your own parents. It's another symptom of our own culture, when we don't want to care for our own parents. I'm charged with these responsibilities, which means that this, the realm of my authority and responsibility under God has been greatly enlarged. Now, when we see an able-bodied person who has sound mind, sound in body, who's never left home, never established themselves in work, never established themselves in covenant relationships, never broken the ties of childish dependence, in other words, 40-year-old living in his mum and dad's basement who still hasn't got a job, we think it's a bit tragic, don't we? We view it as a tragedy. In the same way, if we see a child that is having to bear adult responsibilities like we so frequently do when we're watching the news about what's going on in different parts of uh, Africa like the Sudan where children have uh, lost their parents to AIDS and you see a 12-year-old girl with an infant balanced on each hip. We also think that is a tragedy. Children made to bear adult responsibilities and then an adult unable or unwilling to bear adult responsibilities. It's a tragedy if somebody doesn't grow up. God's commission to men and women, though, from the beginning of time was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls along the ground. And this is what God says about you and me. What is man that you remember him? This is Psalm 8. The son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God. And crowned him with glory and honour, you made him Lord over the works of your hands, you put everything under his feet. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. See, the regency of men and women under God was meant to be comprehensive. Something that theologians refer to as the dominion mandate. And the Christian person, the regenerated person, somebody who has been reborn in terms of the new birth which Christ offers, is of course now in a position to begin to fulfill this mandate in terms of Christ and his word, in a way that the non-believer is unable to. Hence, Jesus talks perpetually about the kingdom of God coming in and through his redeemed people. It's you and me. Now, the Apostle Paul writes about this distinction between childish and mature thinking, and he compares it 
to knowing in part and then knowing more fully, a maturing process. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians 13, 11. I quote, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. My wife tells me the story of when she was about uh, 12 years old, I think. I could be slightly out on the exact age, but um, I'm sure she'll forgive me. About 12 years old, when she just decided one day that of all of her sort of 30 dolls that she had, that she was now too old for dolls and wasn't going to play with them anymore. And so she gathered up all these dolls, one day put them into a box, put them away, and never touched them again. Until now, when she's playing with my, other, my daughter's dolls. But um, <laughs> isn't it interesting how children reach a stage where they decide, that's too childish for me now. I've grown up. I've grown past that. It's like me and my 30 posters of Elvis Presley on the wall. And... Uh, my Elvis medallion and coat with Elvis on the back and Elvisly yours monthly subscription and <laughs> people were glad I grew out of it. When we mature, we leave childish things behind. The distinction between adulthood and childhood, you know as teachers, is comprehension. Comprehension. As we grow, our understanding becomes more comprehensive so that we are encouraging those whom we teach to make new connections between things, thoughts, and persons. So that their understanding grows. It's like the first time your child tells a joke and grasps humour. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? How something can be funny. Because a connection is made, an unusual connection is made, that makes it amusing. How they may take words that have been used in a particular context, and how all of a sudden they have crafted them into a new sentence, and it makes you laugh. I mean, my children being five and uh, nearly five and almost three at the moment, the dinner table is hilarious because of the things that they say. Sometimes they don't understand what they've said, which makes it even funnier, but sometimes they do. This is illustrated well when you're trying to read children's stories of their slightly different ages. With my two daughters, I can't read most of the time the same story at the same time to both of them. Why? Because the five-year-old has grown beyond the comprehension of the three-year-old. And so she gets bored with books appropriate for a three-year-old. And equally, the three-year-old tends to be impatient and want to turn the pages far too quickly when we're reading a book for my elder daughter. There's too many words. She just wants to see the next picture. Making connections leads to greater comprehension. This is something that you know, of course. I'm not teaching you anything here. But this is the point of it. One of the problems and challenges in our day due to compromise and collapse is that we have been thinking, speaking, reasoning as children, as toddler Christians. You know, we are toddler Christians in the West today compared to our forebears. How many of us really believe it's even important to catechize people anymore? Do we even know what that means? To teach and train people in the faith. I had somebody come up to me the other Sunday, seven years in church. I'd spoken last year on um, the Passover. She said, that was a great story. I've never heard of Moses. 
Now, these things are increasingly common, because Sundays are about being entertained. And how flashy can the service be? Catering to a consumer culture. We have become toddler Christians, and therefore we fail to make necessary connections to gain comprehension of the spheres and realm in which God calls us to operate as mature believers. Our growth has been stunted in that sense. It's like failure to launch as a Christian. <laughs> See the point that's being made here? When you consider... Let me give you one illustration, and I'm not... Um, I, let me just preface this with... This. I began life as a Christian apologist and as an evangelist, as a rock musician. I know you wouldn't know it to look at me. <laughs> I was a lead guitarist and vocalist in a band. I have three brothers, almost as good-looking as I am. And we had a band called the Boot Brothers. Um, <laughs> no joke. And uh, we used to tour up and down the UK, prisons, hotels, so on, and we made an album called Crystal Tears, and, and we had a great time. I loved those uh, years with the, with the band. I have nothing against contemporary music. When we come to think about worship, for example, if you read the hymns of John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Isaac Watts, I'm not talking about the 1950 schmaltzy stuff that come, came out of the south of the States. I'm talking about the hymnody of the British Empire. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm, t I'm talking about the, the, s the songs were written by theologians. And people learned much of their theology through what they sang. This was true of the early church. When Ambrose's church in Milan was surrounded by the, uh, by the police, and they were going to come in and uh, empty the place and, and, and wreck the, uh, the, uh, the church there, people sang hymns, Trinitarian hymns. What do we learn through our singing today? What do we learn? If we were learning through the things that we sang, what would we learn? It's not true of all of it. It's not across the board. There is some good stuff. And I'm not saying that our, all of our singing has to be incredibly intellectually engaging. But at least some of it has to have some content. And we are producing baby Christians. Toddler Christians, and that would be fine if they were new converts who then grow on to maturity. But the difficulty is, we stay toddlers. And we retreat from our mandate in Christ. It's very easy to blame governments, it's very easy to blame the state, it's very easy to blame Islam and all of those things for why things are as they are. Do you know the primary responsibility is with us? We don't even believe in the family anymore. We're having 1.7 children on average in Canada today. In parts of Western Europe, like Greece, it's down to 1.1. No civilization has survived a drop infertility like that. We have one child to adorn our 4,000 square feet of hardwood floor in our SUV. The working population is shrinking, the dependent population is growing, the tax dollars are increasingly being taken out of the working person's purse. And do you know how many children Muslims have? Four, five or more? Demography, even from the perspective of demography, see, because what we believe in in our culture today is infanticide. A 
abortion, terrible numbers of abortions. Promiscuity, which produces sexually transmitted diseases, which damages ability to have children. You know, the writer of the Proverbs says, speaking as the wisdom of Christ, all those who hate me, wisdom says, love death. We're producing death in our culture today. Extreme forms of feminism and the rejection of a biblical understanding of the family means that today, as the statisticians tell us, by 2017 there'll be more people over the age of 65 than the 15 first time in Canada's history. And Islam will come in because you don't have to be a mathematician to work out the exponential growth. See, that's how faiths like Islam spread. The more we abandon and the Christian worldview in terms of the family and the church and education, that is why we have ourselves to blame. Because if we hadn't surrendered education and institutions and government and even something like having children, instead of it being a responsibility, if possible, for a married couple, well, maybe we should, maybe, maybe when I'm in my 40s. How many children can you have when you get to 39 or 40? You see, when a nation abandons Christian truth, the slide is inevitable. The slide is inevitable, even in terms of the survival of a nation. Yet this is what the scripture encourages us to do, to make these connections from our understanding of the Christian worldview into law and politics and education, developing a comprehensive faith rather than privatizing our faith as a personal, not a public matter, concerned with our personal soul and personal salvation, our mother's milk Christianity, escape from this nasty world into heaven. Quick, read Tim LaHaye's latest book. Let's get out of here. And yet the scripture says, the earth, and by the way, uh, Tim LaHaye, it's just a novel. They are novels, the Left Behind series. Does this, is, is this world run by Satan? Did he create it? Did he, does he govern it? Is our purpose to escape the world as quickly as possible and hand it over to those who do not serve Christ? Though the scripture says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord, for he laid its foundations on the seas and established it on the rivers. We've seen Jesus' reaffirmation of this mandate in the Great Commission. You see, when I read the Great Commission as a boy, all I could understand and see from what I was reading, naturally, was I was concerned that my friends should go to heaven, and I wanted this to happen, and that's important. It's valid, and I want to diminish that. But the faith, our faith, is not eternal fire insurance marketing. That's not its purpose. Our faith is one that is to be applied now in our lives. See, Neoplatonism has so infiltrated the thinking in the church that we are concerned with internal piety and our escape into heaven. Well, our internal attitude towards God is very important. But so is also how we live now as members of families, communities, churches, and so forth. How we apply God's word to our lives. Jesus taught us to pray like this, didn't he? Thy kingdom come, you tell me. Thank you. On earth, as it is in heaven. That's how we have been taught to pray. God's plan for in Scripture is for redemption and restoration of this world. Through you and through me. 
It is not about deliver. I remember we used to sing a really terrible old hymn when I was a child in, back in the church. They're not all great. We have to measure them on the basis of what their content. And I, remember, I only remember the lines, Hold the fort, for I am coming. It was sort of like, uh, you know, Michael Caine in Zulu, you know, a ho- trying to hold off the uh, warring lords there. Th- that's not the image we get in Scripture. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's work in history through His church. But we have to change our vision and expectations. It's very difficult sometimes for us to believe what Christ says and what God's Word says over and against what seems to be patently evident in the world. We might not see it in our generation. But I want to ensure that my children, the legacy I leave is one of faithfulness to God so that their generation might be a different one. We pray for revival all the time, don't we? Pray for renewal, pray for God's work. And yet sometimes we're not prepared to do it. And the teaching mandate is one of the most important in bringing about revival and transformation. You know, in the Great Awakening in England in the 18th century under John Wesley and George Whitfield and then the Clapham sect, it produced huge cultural change. Prisons emptied, education began, and in fact the middle classes were formed quite literally out of the Great Awakening. Slavery was abolished. Child labour, prison reform, all these things happened out of the Great Awakening. These things can happen again, even in our time, if we will be obedient to Christ's command. You see, Christ has come not just to redeem your soul, but to redeem science and literature and philosophy and the arts and music and every aspect of our experience, because this is God's world. And you are His creature. He wants to redeem music from the bump-and-grind, hip-hop, popular stuff. Again, let me, don't want to be too judgmental. I was talking about this with my colleague over lunch today. Not all jazz is wrong. My wife trained us in ballet and uh, jazz and tap and all sorts. Some of it is very, very creative. But we know there's a line when it crosses over into being bass. Vulgar. We've lost that line. We've lost a sense of decency. And again, the more a culture slips away from Christ, the more indecent and exposed it becomes. He has come to redeem history. Whether it be painting or the symphony. Think about the things that were, that, that were generated out of the, like the Christian worldview. In our own history. This, this attitude, though, of privatization has led to this surrender of institutions and schools and so forth that we've seen. But Scripture says of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. It comes down to this, friends. What do you believe? Do you believe what God says of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end? Do you believe that that is his work through you and me? Psalm 110, verse 1 through 3 reads, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your youth belongs to you. You know, I love the game of soccer, partly because I'm quite good at it, and uh, partly because I grew up with it in England, even though we don't play it so well as we used to. (laughs) One of the important things about sport 
like the game of soccer, in the end, is that you have to determine who makes the rules. You don't turn up to a match and say, right, let's gather around, let's have a vote on the uh, offside rule. The referee's authority has to be accepted, otherwise the game descends into anarchy. The question for us is, with our faith, what kind of, is our faith going to be comprehensive, in which we obey the calls of our umpire, of our referee, who is Christ, who sets the rules, or is somebody else going to set the rules? All of us live in terms of one concept of sovereignty or another. It's either the sovereignty of human beings, individual or collective, or it's the sovereignty and authority of Christ. And if we are unwilling to apply the authority of Christ to life, then we, w- we will not live a comprehensive faith. We will live one that's radically compartmentalized, where we're afraid to speak into this situation, or that situation, or deal with this matter, or that matter, in terms of Christ and His Word. We'll say to ourselves, well, we've come up with a better solution now. We've come up with a better way of doing it. We've got evolved sensibilities. What does it mean to believe in this sovereign God? Let me quote for you that great advocate for Christian education in, in the States, the late Rushduni. He says, What does it mean then to believe in sovereignty, government, and providence as a Christian? It means that my life and being are under the sovereignty and government of an all-wise and most holy trinity, whose ordering, preserving, and government of all things is for his own purpose and glory. And my only joy and purpose is to acknowledge that sovereign, governing providence and to rest in its sufficiency. It means that in every area of life I must acknowledge and establish rule and law and authority in terms of his law word and in faithfulness to his kingship. This means that in every area of life and thought I must assert the crown rights of Christ the King and bring all things into captivity to him. It is the fact that we enthrone Christ as King that creates conflict. Some of the conflict that we feel and some of the conflict that we don't like, that we're afraid of. We don't want to be ostracized, we don't want to be marginalized, we don't want to be rejected, we don't want to be thought draconian and old-fashioned and out of date. But being faithful to the Christian worldview means that at times that may be the case. The early church faced this in an unprecedented way. Any of you who have read Fox's Book of Martyrs or studied the, 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 the early church in the first and second century will know that the church, by ascribing sovereignty and kingship to Christ, King of the Jews, by ascribing Christ, lordship to Christ, as opposed to Caesar, who claimed to be a god. Caesar claimed himself to be a god. You could be on the Roman coins, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. That's one of the reasons why there was such significance to the question that was asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? We haven't got time to go into it. Do we, the early church were asked, bow to the sovereignty of Caesar, offer incense on the altar, and go in by way of the uh, censure of the state, be permitted a few liberties and so forth, but at least admit that the state, that the Caesar is Lord, or do we say Christ Jesus is Lord? And do we deny that role to Caesar and any other earthly power? You know, the early church answered that question in terms of the lordship of Christ. That's why many of them were thrown to lions burned alive and so forth in the Colosseums. They answered it that Christ Jesus is Lord and there is no other Lord and we will live ultimately in terms of Him and His government and within 300 years, for better or worse, the Roman Empire, the far reaches of the empire are being converted to Christianity. A teacher in Palestine, crucified as a criminal, buried in somebody else's tomb, 
Never traveled more than 200 miles from his own home. Never wrote a book. Outside of the scripture by the Holy Spirit, of course. Never appeared on television, didn't have a blog site. Nothing like that. And his 12 followers eventually see the entire world coming to faith in Jesus Christ because they took the stand that Christ, Jesus, is Lord against the might of the Roman Empire. And they won victory, not by the sword, but by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit through their lives. Who is that final authority? Let me finish with this illustration. I have a double garage on the side of my house and I'm converting this into an apartment for my parents, a couple of stories. And they're going to be returning from the mission field. They're missionaries in Pakistan at the moment. Been there for 12 years. And they're going to come to, to Canada and live with us. So I've been preparing and thinking about how to build and so forth. And as I was doing something with this house, the house we're in now, uh, a year or so ago, on the other part of the property, as we were having construction done, I noticed, I was looking out the window one day, and I noticed squirrels during the fall there preparing for the winter. And they were gathering up, you know, you know how they do, scurrying all over the place, gathering their stores for the winter. They had a blueprint for the future, just as I did. I thought, I look at God's creation and I see that there is a plan for the future. Even the animals, the beasts, make a plan for the future. I was making a plan for the future because there was a future that I envisioned. Of my family in this home, of caring for my parents in this home and so forth. A future that I envisioned. A plan. And I start to work toward its fulfilment. What is your vision for the future? For the Christian faith in Canada? For your family? For your children? How are you working toward it? Education is a plan, is a blueprint for the future. It is something towards which you are determined to work and labour to see it fulfilled. I encourage you to work and labour in terms of the word of Christ. And take courage, because the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundations on the seas and established it on the rivers. When we do, the gates will be lifted up. The King of Glory will come in, not through our wisdom and our own power, but through the grace of Christ working in and through us to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.